Ellery and I always enjoy getting away, but we always enjoy getting back and uh, being with all of you. I want to thank Larry for faithfully preaching God's Word last week. I knew that when I manipulated, I mean when I asked him um, to fill in, uh, I knew that we were in good hands uh, with him. So anyway, let me go ahead and pray, <clears throat> and uh, we'll get into God's Word together. Our gracious Father, thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you that you loved us so much. In spite of who we are. In spite of things that we have done. You loved us so much that you wanted us to be part of your family. And so in the fullness of time, you sent your son into this world to take on human flesh. so that He could die in our place as our substitute. Taking our sin upon Himself and paying the price that we deserved so that through Him we might be forgiven. And He rose again as we just sang about. He rose again to prove victory over sin and over death. We build our faith upon that reality that we, we live for, serve a risen Savior. And so today, Father, we come before You asking that You would, by Your Spirit, teach us Your Word. Use that Word to help us in our journey. To live out our faith in ways that are real and authentic. To, to live with eternity in view as we journey toward our inevitable end in this life and our beginning in the next, to live in your presence forevermore. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for what you are doing and what you've promised to do in the future. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. <clears throat> and as we've been looking at the book of Philippians, we've observed the Apostle Paul as he writes to the Philippian believers, he's recounting his own circumstances. That he's in prison <clears throat> for his faith. And he's awaiting a trial before the emperor. And as he's sharing about his circumstance, he wants the believers there in Philippi not to be discouraged by the fact that he's in prison, uh, thinking to themselves possibly that this, this movement uh, called the way, this, this teaching of the gospel of Jesus may be greatly hindered because the great apostle Paul has, has been imprisoned. And Paul says, I want you to understand something. That this thing that I'm going through, this circumstance I'm in, this imprisonment, has actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Rather than, than it being something that has, has put a stop to the, the progress of God's message to the world, it is actually being used by God to cause it to go forth. 
And not only that, he says, but many believers have been encouraged to be more bold in their proclamation of the gospel. And so the very thing that looks like a negative circumstance, God is using it in, uh, to advance the message of Christ. And then he talks about the fact that, that he, as he ponders the reality of his circumstance, he says, it would be very much better for me personally to depart from this place and to go and be with God. But if I remain on in the flesh, that will mean fruitful, fruitful labor for me, and that's better for you. Because I can remain and encourage you in your faith. And so he says, convinced of this, think God's going to keep me around for a little longer. His perspective on life and death is simply this. He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's living with, an eternal, with eternity in view. If I'm going to live, it's going to be Christ living in me, and he's going to be exalted, and he's going to accomplish his purpose through me, and if I die, that's even greater gain. And so Paul, Paul is talking about God's part. God's part was to take the circumstance that he was in and to use it for his glory and for the advancement of the kingdom. Paul is talking talked about his part, and that is that he's going to remain, and if he remains, that will mean fruitful labor, and he's going to continue to live for Christ. And now, this morning, verses 27 to 30, he's going to tell them their part. And we need to hear it as, our part. God will be faithful to do his part to work through whatever circumstance you and I find ourselves in. Negative or positive from our perspective, God will work. And so what is our part? He says to them, only conduct yourselves, verse 27, Philippians 1, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but a salvation for you and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So he says, I'm going to do my part as the apostle. I'm going to remain and I'm going to continue to, to do what Christ has called me and God will use it to bring fruitful labor. But you on your part, you are to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In essence, what he's saying is, and the word that's used there for conduct yourselves, is a word which means behave as citizens. Live as citizens. Perform your duties as citizens of a kingdom. And what is that kingdom? It's the kingdom of the gospel of Christ. He says you need to live your life as a good citizen of the kingdom of Christ. 
What is a good citizen? Well, I looked up online just to see what people were saying about what does it mean to be a good citizen in our, in our world that we live in. And here are ten things that, that, are, that are said. Uh, first of all, good citizen is, is uh, patriotic. That is, they, they take great pride in the, the community they're part of. Patriotic. Secondly, model the personal qualities of a good citizen. He went through a list of things like faithful, uh, integrity, doing what is right, doing what is, is fair, and all these kinds of things. Qualities that we see laid out in the scriptures of how we are to live our lives, even as believers. Thirdly, it talks about being a productive member of society. Being part of the group and doing something that benefits the whole group. Fourthly, being active in your community, being part of it, doing your part. Five, keep yourself well informed, know what's going on. Sixthly, be vigilant. Make sure things are going right. Make sure those who are in leadership are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Seven, participate in your nation's political life. At the least, that would mean for many citizens to be part of the voting process. Have a, have a part, have a say in what's going on in your world. And for others, and we're so thankful for those who love Jesus, who are willing to step into the to positions to represent us, and uh, who have a, a biblical and a godly perspective on how a nation is supposed to operate. Eight, be a mentor. Help somebody else. Pour into somebody else. Nine, be well-rounded. Know what's going on and, and, and understand and, and be part of a lot of things. Have, a, have an, understanding and a, and a, an understanding of what is going on and how to do things. And then lastly, number ten, it says, order your corner of the world. Make sure what you're responsible for, what you have some say in, that you... You do what's right in that place. And when I, when I read these things, I thought, wow. Can you imagine if, first of all, if just people in our country bought into this and said, this is my responsibility. I thought, wow, these are great qualities for those who are part of the kingdom of God. Citizens the kingdom of God. These are so many things that we are told in Scripture about how we are to live our lives. Right? Personal qualities. Patriotic, if you will. Uh, uh, believing in the community in which we live and, and, and taking pride in that and in, in who we are as the people of God. and Being productive. Being a mentor. Uh, being informed. Participating. Um, Doing your part in, your, in the place that you are. These are all great things of how to be a good citizen. And so when Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, he's saying, we must live as worthy citizens of Christ's kingdom. Kenneth Wiest says this about the, the way he says it. He talks about, he uses the middle voice 
uh, in the, in the uh, verb that's used there, to conduct yourselves, which means that you are the subject acts upon itself. And so he says here, the Philippian saints are exhorted to act upon themselves in recognizing their duties with respect to their heavenly citizenship and holding themselves to them. It is a stronger exhortation than merely that of commanding someone to do something. In the latter kind, the exhortation, uh, the person obeys the person who exhorts them. But in this form that is used here, Paul gives the exhortation that the person exhorted is to recognize his or her position as a citizen of the heavenly kingdom while obeying the exhortation as a matter of obligation to God, not to other people. Yet at the same time, realize his responsibilities to obey it because of the privileged position that we have. We are privileged to be part of the kingdom of Christ. And so it is a, an obligation we place upon ourselves to live as good and worthy citizens within the kingdom. He says, you could translate it this way, only see to it that you recognize your responsibility as a citizen and put yourself to the absolute necessity of performing the duties devolving upon you in that position. That is your and my responsibility as individuals. To take seriously what Christ has called us to. We, are, we have been privileged to be part of the kingdom. To be part of the family. And so in one sense, we should not need anybody to tell us, this is how you're to live. We should take that responsibility upon ourselves seriously and say, how would you, Lord, have me to live as a, as a worthy citizen of the kingdom of Christ? And I want to live that out for your honor and for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. That word worthy means of like value or worth as much. The saints are to see to it that their manner of life weighs as much as the gospel they profess to believe. Or, and, or their words will not have any weight. Think about that. The way we live our lives to reflect the gospel is as much weight as the words we speak themselves. Because for many people, they don't care what you say until they see what you do. Right? They see that you care about them, then they'll care about what you have to say. When they see the gospel lived out before them, the gospel of grace, the gospel of love, the gospel of peace, when they see that's how you live your life, they're willing to listen to what you have to say. He said that which gives weight to a Christian's words is the fact that his manner of life befits, is congruous with, corresponds with the gospel that he preaches. I remember as a, as a kid, we used, to, we used to tease our dog. And we loved our dog. And so, you know, dogs don't always understand the words, but they certainly understand emotion and they understand tone of voice. And so we would say to our dog, oh, we think you're the worst dog in the world. We pet him and we tell him all these negative things and he just <laughs> wagging his tail, loving it. And then we'd say, we hate you. Oh, we'd say, we, we, we love you. We think you're wonderful. And the poor dog would be like, oh, no, like this. And so, you know, it's, it's not necessarily always the words we speak. It's the manner in which we live that should then reflect the words that we speak. And so Paul says, if I'm going to stay around here for a little longer, 
I'd rather go to be with Jesus. If I'm going to stay here, and I'm pretty sure this is what God would have for me, I'm going to do my part. He says, only you need to do yours. And that is to live as a worthy citizen of the gospel of Christ, the, the kingdom of Jesus. And so then he, in these few verses, gives us some some ways to do that. In fact, I would say that, that in many commentators say, this really, this, this uh, imperative to conduct yourselves, which is a command, really sets the tone for the rest of the letter. And he goes on, even in chapters 2, 3, and 4, to kind of talk about what does it look like then to live out our citizenship as part of the kingdom of Christ, um, to live with eternity in view. But he says in these few verses, these few things, he says, whether I come and see you personally or whether I remain absent and just hear about you, I want to hear this, that you are standing firm right, in one spirit. And so we need to stand firm in the faith. It's one of the ways that we can be model citizens. We can be uh, uh, worthy citizens of Christ's kingdom. Stand firm in the faith. The word to stand means to stand strong, to persist persevere to hold one's ground. And so we need to hold our ground. Hold our ground. Gerald Hawthorne says this. This word means, uh, it conveys the idea of firmness, steadfastness, and unflinching courage like that possessed by soldiers who determinedly refuse to leave their post irrespective of how severely the battle rages. To hold your ground. Don't give up on the gospel. It implies the idea of facing opposition. And he talks about that in this passage. He says in uh, verse 28, no way alarmed by your opponents. There are people, and in Paul's day particularly, there were, there were many who were coming against the message of the gospel, both Gentiles and Jews. The Jews were saying that, they, that Paul was not going far enough in, in embracing Judaism. And he wasn't teaching. They had to be circumcised and all those things. He, was, he had left, in a sense, the law in that, that sense that the law could do anything to earn God's favor. But he was not throwing it all out. He said the law is good because it teaches us that we are, we are bad and we need a Savior. So the Jews wanted him to embrace all that and make that a requirement to be part of the the citizenship. And then there were the Gentiles who were, who were uh, worshiping multiple gods. And when you worship multiple gods and somebody comes in and says, no, you're going to worship one true God, you kind of get upset about that. And so there were opponents on both sides. And they were real opponents and they were coming against them. And Paul says, you need to hold your ground. Hold your ground regarding the gospel. And here's where we need to be careful. It's not hold your ground on your pet peeve. It's hold your ground on the gospel. We often get that confused. We think our pet peeve is as important as the gospel. We think that we need to dig in our heels and, and, and stand on this thing. It's not the gospel. And in doing that, we can, and oftentimes do, actually 
hinder the gospel because we're taking a stand on the wrong thing. We take our stand on the gospel. I want to share with you an example of this, and uh, if you, and I will, I will be sending out email. I, I don't think I did yet, but uh, the noise latest, Kevin and Maria Noise, their latest uh, newsletter uh, through email, and uh, and I just want to read uh, what they share about the, what they're experienced they experienced recently on the college campus, and I believe this was from Maria. She says it was the first week of classes at Penn State. York and 92 degrees. My co-worker and I stepped out of the cool interior of the Pulo Center of Penn State York and into the blazing heat. We started to walk across the campus hoping to see more students. And we saw a student sitting by herself at a picnic table, so we stopped to talk to her. We're going, we're going around trying to meet students, they said, and, and uh, she graciously invited them to sit down with her. That sweat dripped drip down our backs. This girl they, they call Jen, that's not a real name, but just, just for sake of, of this. Jen shared a bit about her family and how she came to be at Penn State York. And then she asked us if we were students. Nope. We work for a campus ministry called Disciple Makers, my co-worker said. To which Jen responded, everyone I've ever talked to who is religious tells me I'm going to hell. That must be hard, I said. Would you tell us more about what you, what you went through? So Jen opened up and shared that she was a transgender. And when she told her religious grandmother about her gender identity, her grandmother responded, I love you, but you're going to hell. Jen recounted that she had similar conversations with other relatives and people at the church she went to. Has anyone ever told you how to get to heaven? I asked. No, no one ever told me that, she responded. That's a good question. Would it be okay if we shared with you how to get to heaven from a Christian perspective? And she said, sure. So my co-worker explained the gospel to Jen using the bridge diagram. We explained how we all sin, fall short of God's standards, which separates us from a perfect and holy God. And, and God sent his perfect son, Jesus, to be the bridge between God and man, to live a perfect life and to die on the cross, to take the punishment that we should get for our sins. His resurrection proved that God accepted his son's sacrifice for our sin. And Jen asked a number of questions afterwards, like, if God is so loving, why, why is he so wrathful? And so we explained how God is truly loving, and he has to hate that which threatens his, what he loves. And she said, I have an almost two-year-old toddler who I love, so I hate any abuse done to him. God hates sin because it hurts us in our relationship with him. And if God, wants, um, if God wasn't just, there would be no punishment for sin, and he wouldn't be loving. A light bulb seemed to click in her mind. Well, that makes sense, she said. So she asked more questions, and we kept talking, forgetting about the heat as we saw her desire to learn more. And Jen had to leave then for work, but she invited us to the game room where she works, and we invited her to our Bible study. Pray for God to soften Jen's heart to the gospel. And she says, I've been trying to stop by and talk to her at her job on campus every week. That's how we minister to people. We love them where they are. We point them to Jesus. We can get wrapped up in all the things that people are doing that, that are wrong, that are offensive to God. 
and we can love them where they are for Jesus' sake. Share with them the good news of Jesus. And then when Jesus gets hold of them, He can change their life. We've all heard the analogy, right? We catch the fish, and then Jesus will clean them. We don't clean them first. We take a stand on the gospel. The gospel of grace. And we stand there. We continue to point people to Jesus. Now obviously there's a place in the discipleship process to, to bring to bear what the Scripture says on our behavior. That's after we come to embrace Jesus as Savior. And too many times, my brothers and sisters, too many times, we, and I tell me to myself, we get it wrong and we want to get everything right first in their life. And then he talks about standing firm in one spirit and, and, and with one mind. And he talk, talking about unity. Right? We need to maintain a unity of the spirit. Unity of the spirit. And the bond of peace. And in and, and Ephesians, you go back a couple of pages to Ephesians chapter 4, and you see Paul saying the same thing to the Ephesian believers. Probably writing at the same time from the same prison. And he says in chapter 4, 1 through 3, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you or urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Same thing. Walk as citizens of this kingdom with which you've been called into. And he says, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. With all humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance with one another. The unity of the Spirit. In chapter 2 of Philippians, the first couple of verses, and we'll look at this next week, it talks about that unity of mindset and perspective. Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17. He prayed that we would be unified. He said this in John 17, 20-23. He says, I do not ask, as he's praying to the Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, referring to his disciples in that day, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's you and me today. Because we believe in Christ through the word of the apostles written in the scriptures. And he says, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, and I in them, thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me, and has loved them, even as thou didst love me. There's so much hatred being spewed in our world today. Much of it around the political divide. The divide over vaccination, unvaccinated, masks or no masks, and all this craziness. There's so much anger and so much hatred and so much uh, wrath being spewed back and forth. Name calling. 
all kind of ignorance. We can, we can disagree on things without being ignorant, without being hateful. Jesus said as he prayed, the world will know that you, Father, sent me here by the unity that the body has, the way they love one another, the way they treat one another, the way they work together, where they set aside the, the petty differences to, to stand together on the, the main thing, the gospel. We can't be united if the gospel, if we're not together in the gospel. Let's be clear, we can't be united with everybody, even who doesn't agree with it, in this issue. Right? That's why we hold our ground on the gospel. We don't waver on that. We stay there, and we maintain unity with our brothers and sisters who are there, together. Then he says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Which sounds like the same thing, and in many ways it, it is, and yet it has a different nuance. This standing firm has more of a, a, a fighting mentality, a, a military thought process. Striving together is more of, a, of a, an athletic. In fact, the word that's used here is where we get our word athlete from. And Paul is big on the Olympic Games of that day. And he talked, he uses that imagery a lot of times, and here he does. He says we need to strive together for the faith. This means to contend together, to strive at the same time with another person. And so we need to contend together as a team. To be together in this as a team, working together. Kenneth Weist again says, striving is the translation of the Greek word for an athletic contest. It's where we get our word athlete from. A prefixed preposition implying cooperation makes the total meaning of the word refer to an athletic contest in which a group of athletes cooperates as a team against another team. Working in perfect coordination against a common opposition. Paul is exhorting the members of the Philippian church to work together in perfect coordination just like a team of Greek athletes. We saw the Olympics this past summer. Right? And we saw many athletes from different places around the country, uh, from colleges that compete against each other during, during their time normally, but they came together on the same team. As one who likes to, to play and watch golf, some of you may, may like that. Uh, just recently, the Ryder Cup was on. The Ryder Cup is, is, uh, only happens every two years. The Ryder Cup is like, like the one thing, it's like a, an Olympic a athletic event for the golfers. It's where the, a team of 12 players from the United States compete against a team of 12 from Europe. And they, in three days, they compete as teams against each other in different formats, but they play together as a team against each other. And there are two particular golfers here in the United States that have had great controversy with each other all in, in the news and public. I mean, they've, they've just, uh, it's been such a, uh, among people who like to, to pay attention to what's going on in the golf world, these two golfers, uh, it appeared that they hated each other. They just, couldn't, they just couldn't say anything good about each other. They were both on that team. And the captain of that team even said at the end of the time, he said, these guys, this team was so united 
that even uh, uh, Bryson and Brooks wanted to play on the same foursome together. These two guys that just couldn't come together, they did for the sake of the team. Because they saw that team was more important than their individual uh, perspective. And I even saw as I watched at the end when they won, these two guys gave each other a quick hug. It's very interesting. When we buy into, when we embrace the reality of, of team camaraderie and working together for a common goal, a brotherhood or a sisterhood, we can set aside our petty differences and we can work together. And Paul says, listen, we need to stand firm, right? hold our ground in unity, but we've got to strive together, contend as a team together. We're all in this together for the faith of the gospel. And so we contend for the gospel. We together strive to get the gospel out to other people. We work together. We pull our resources together at times. We pray for each other to that end. Encourage each other to that end. We spend time in relationship, growing together. That's what, that's what discipleship is. Discipleship, mentoring, what this is, is one person with another person or another couple people, spending time in the Word of God together, reflecting on what does it look like to live this out, how do we grow together. Maybe one person who may be a little further down the road can share certain things about their walk with Christ and how they've learned how to, how to spend time with God, how to read the Bible and, get, and, and, and discover what God says, how to pray, how to do all these things to grow up so that that person could then begin to pour into someone else. So it perpetuates. We work together so that the gospel continues to go forth so that there are more and more workers who are built up and equipped and ready to go for the gospel. The truth of the gospel is being challenged everywhere we turn in one way or another. Sometimes overtly, sometimes sub, uh, subvertly. But it's being challenged. So <laughs> we need to keep reminding ourselves, stay on the gospel. Don't get sidetracked from the gospel and the purpose for why we're here. To live out the gospel, to share the gospel, to encourage each other in the gospel. And so we stand firm in the faith, we strive together and for the faith, and thirdly, and this might be the hardest, <laughs> we need to accept God's plan by faith. He says, in no way, verse 28, alarmed, fearful by those opponents, <clears throat> which is a sign of destruction for them, but a salvation for you. As we stand firm, as we strive together, that is a sign of destruction for the opponents. It is a sign of deliverance, if you will, for us. And that's from God. And then he says this, 
where to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And so we need to accept God's plan by faith. That word granted means to show someone a favor. To be kind to. And so God has graciously granted us the privilege of believing in Him. And we say, yes. How thankful we are that God has given us this great privilege to hear the Gospel. His Spirit helped us understand through conviction that we needed a Savior because of our sin. And we, we came to believe in Jesus. This is a gracious kindness of God. And we understand that. And we're so thankful for that. And we probably need to spend more time reflecting upon that. And he says, also, to suffer for his sake. God has graciously granted us the privilege of suffering for him. Now, we don't like that statement. <laughs> we like the first one. But again, Paul understood the purpose of suffering. He knew what it was like to suffer for Christ, for the sake of Christ. Let me remind you of one of those passages where he speaks about this in 2 Corinthians 11. Verses 22 to 28. Are you, he says uh, of his opponents, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And he says, I speak as if insane. I'm more so. And then he goes on to share this. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Paul knew what it was like suffer for the sake of Christ. <laughs> no wonder he said it'd be better for me to go to heaven, right? But he said, for your sake, step back into it again. And even if all those things happened again, Paul was ready to go because he knew that there was there's a privilege that God has granted us to suffer for Christ. The disciples in Acts 4 or 5, I, I forget the exact verse, but when they were, they were imprisoned for preaching the gospel and they were beaten and they were told not to do it anymore and then they were let go and they walked out rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. Somewhere, we've lost that mentality, right? 
Maybe our cushy lives here in the U.S. have, have just done that to us after generations of, uh, you know, and again, I, I, I'm not condemning that necessarily, but we've got to make sure that we do not allow our lifestyle on this earth prevent us from living the lifestyle Christ has called us to while we wait for heaven. We already were reminded earlier in the passage that God works to our present circumstances to accomplish His purposes. And so we can rejoice in whatever we go through because we know God is at work. Paul also understood the, the part that suffering played in his own individual life when Later in Philippians chapter 3, when he says that his desire was to set aside all the things that come with, with his fleshly accolades. And he says that, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul knew that God was using the hard, difficult things, the sufferings, the, all the things he went through to grow him up. I don't have a great handle on this one, personally. I don't want to suffer. In fact, Valerie asked me, before we went on our trip to Mexico, she said, what are you most looking forward to? I said, touching ground when we're home. Because I don't like to fly. And I'm not afraid to fly. It doesn't make, it's just, I don't like the whole process of the crowd at the, at the airport and going through all that and, and just everything about that. We got, finally got there, we're like, okay. And then when we're getting to the end of the week, I got through this again, man, I just, I just don't like it. It's not suffering. So that may God give us the grace to be willing to walk into whatever He calls us to, whatever it means for us, for His sake, to represent Him well. To initiate a conversation with an unbeliever. Find out, do they have any interest? Not to jam it down their throat, but might be some interest. Valerie and I had a great conversation uh, Friday night. Uh, we, we, you know, we had the rehearsal for the wedding here Friday night, and we went to a restaurant for dinner, and, and, and we're at the restaurant, and we got to sit in the same booth with a couple of the bridesmaids. And one bridesmaid, just out of the blue, said to me, have you, ever wa have you always wanted to be a pastor? <laughs> Thank you, Lord. So I got to share my testimony, how God called me into ministry. And we spent the rest of the evening, Valerie and I talking to these two young ladies, finding out about their spiritual journey. Both were, be, began in the church, had negative experiences with church people who emphasized the wrong things. And one young lady is a, a waitress. At a, at a local restaurant. And she said, one day, one of the customers gave me this little, little New Testament. 
and has helps in it. And I've been reading it. So thank you, Gideons, for giving out Bibles to people. We need to be ready to represent Jesus wherever we are, wherever we go, and to step into these things. And, you know, we find that it wasn't as scary as we thought it was going to be. It wasn't as hard. Sometimes people aren't willing to talk, and that's okay, too. We just leave that in the Lord's hands. So we need to ask ourselves, what does it look like for me to live my life <clears throat> as a worthy citizen of Christ's kingdom. As I put on my clothes and my shoes and my, I go out this day into a world that needs to see Jesus. What does that look like for me today? And how can I stand firm, hold my ground? How can I strive together with my brothers and sisters and keep the gospel central, accepting the plans that God has for me this day, this week, whatever that might be. Gracious Father, thank you for the privilege that it is to know Christ, to believe in Him, to have our lives changed by Him. We also thank you by faith the privilege of suffering for you. Whatever that looks like in our individual lives, whatever that's going to mean for us, Lord, we, we thank you by faith because we don't like it. It certainly pushes us out of our comfort zone. But God, there's nowhere that's out of your comfort zone. And so may we walk in what you've called us to. <clears throat> Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminders that it has for us. Keep working in us that we might be found faithful to the very end. To the glory of your name and the strength and power of your spirit. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Well, as we, as we conclude our time singing Have Thine Own Way, um, again, make, make the words of this song that somebody else wrote, may it be your words, as you pray this prayer in song to the Lord. Lord, have your way with me. And as always, if you feel compelled, and God has spoken particularly to you about something, you want to bring that to the altar, uh, please feel free to do so. We're all on the same team. And encourage each other. So if there's something God has put on your heart that you want to make a, a physical presence, stand and come to the altar, don't, don't hinder the Lord from moving you in that way. Come forward and, uh, and we're going to sing together. Have thy own way. Let's stand together.